When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham and Bose, helping you stay connected throughout the lockdown and beyond. And beyond is the crucial word this week, my friends, because those lockdown restrictions are finally easing here in the UK. And it's been a challenge of that, there is no doubt, but it's one I feel that we've come together and helped each other through. And the key to that has been communication. So thank you for all your feedback on the podcast and for your ideas and those that you want to hear from and plenty more great guests on the way. Up next is the world's most successful track cyclist ever. He's Great Britain's joint most successful Olympic athlete of all time with six gold medals and one silver to his name. Have you guessed who I'm talking about? It is Sir Chris Hoy. And we talk throughout this In The Pink episode about family, mental health, motorsport. He's a massive fan of Formula One and races himself, as well as what it takes to be a winner. And boy, does this guy know all about that. And of course, the transition to life after professional sport. So here he is. He's a great guy. He's a great family man. And he has got a great life story. Here it is. The life story of Sir Chris Hoy. Well, great to see you. And I have to say, you don't look like you've suffered from the normal lockdown, feral, <laughs> crazy hair, <laughs> on weight, big hairy beard. You haven't got animals growing in your beard like the twins. Well, I think you're, you're being very kind, actually, because um, I feel like I've got a bit feral. I've, I've never grown a beard before. It's, it's kind of a, a half a half arsed attempt. It's a little bit um, patchy at the moment, but yeah, we'll see. By the end of lockdown, I might have a nice big, full bushy ginger beard. You know, who knows? My wife might want to leave me if I do that. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I was going to say, the only person who matters in this whole beard gate thing is Sarah. So what does she think of it? She quite likes it, I think. Yeah, unless she's just been kind to me. I don't know. But um, yeah, I think, I don't know. We'll see. It's, there's, there's more important things happening out there just now, but right now, yeah, it's, it's itchy. That's the thing. Like, you know, when you've never grown a beard before, I mean, you'll never, you won't know this thing, but yeah, it just well, gets... I don't know. Seven weeks <laughs> in lockdown. Well, you, you know, you're looking like, have you been, you know, how, I mean, joking apart, how do you guys, you know, TV presenters are used to, obviously, in front of camera the whole time, you've got people who are doing your hair and your makeup. Yeah. I mean, for you, it must be, when you're working and doing stuff from home, 
to still be so presentable. I mean, how do you how do you manage it? It's a shock for my poor husband actually knows what I look like now with no roots, blood, <laughs> nails, Botox, you know, God, it's a disaster. <laughs> it's all good. Um, it's actually been lovely. I've quite enjoyed the calmness of it all. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, there's much more important, uh, bigger picture out there, a lot of people suffering and um, you kind of feel a little bit useless really in all of that, don't you? You kind of mm. want the need to help them more. But in terms of the four of us in our family, um, we've, we're missing... Our, our grandparents and our cousins, mm. brothers and sisters, but otherwise, you know, we're good. Um, how have you kept the kids busy? Um, tiring them out physically, that's the real kind of strategy I've been employing. So I've been getting Callum and Chloe out on their bikes. Um, you know, we've got a bit of garden space where they can ride around. And actually Callum's the first time ever, because the roads are so quiet, I've gone out with him for a ride, just the two of us. And he's been, he just, you know, I take some food and a, a drink with me and basically let him lead the way in terms of how long he wants to go for it. He did, he did about nine miles in a day. And it, I mean, I was tired and we live at the top of a hill. So we got to ride back up this hill to the house and he made it all the way up the hill. Um, so yeah, he's, he's, he sleeps well after that, put it that way. But um, yeah, we're having a lot of fun on the bikes. That's amazing. I really want to talk uh, more about Callum later because he's a little miracle baby, isn't he? Mm. Um, and actually nine miles, what is he, five years old? Five years old, yeah, five and a half now. So, um, amazing yeah. to do nine miles. Yeah. Well, I, I wasn't even riding a bike when I was five, so he's doing all right, I think, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, let's start at the beginning for you and your childhood, when you first did get on a bike, because, okay, maybe it wasn't as young as five, but um, you certainly caught the bug pretty early. Uh, tell me about the E.T. story. It's really cute. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess... I was about six years of age and E.T. came out as a film and I think somebody had it on, on VHS on the video and I sat down and watched this movie and everyone else was talking about the alien and about you know E.T. as a film but all I could um, think about were these amazing bikes. I'd never seen, never seen a BMX bike before um, and it was the first time I'd, you know, I'd been exposed to this, this new way of riding a bike, these you know, going over jumps, carving through turns, it was just, you know, it's hard to imagine now because BMX feels like it's been around forever but it didn't exist when I was born. Um, and here was this new way of riding a bike. So immediately I watched the film, I saw the, the BMX bikes, and I thought, this is what I want to have a go of. So tested my parents and you know, I said, oh, can I get BMX for my Christmas? They were about 100 pounds in those days, a lot of money. And my parents being good 50 Scots thought, well, you know, maybe it's gonna be a passing fad, we'll just get them a, any old bike. They got a bike from a local jumbo sale for five pounds second hand and my dad re-sprayed it black and he put BMX stickers on it and BMX handlebars and grips and that was my first bike and I loved it and that, that was how I got into cycling so so really I've got Steven Spielberg to thank for um, for my cycling career. And we, we, we need to thank him too. <laughs> I love the fact that you're uh, I love the fact your dad pimped your ride as early as six oh, years yeah. old. Nice. He loved it. I mean it's looking back now yeah I mean it, to a six-year-old's eyes it, it looked just like the real thing. Oh. Um, but yeah, didn't last long to be fair. I mean, it was I, as soon as I got to the point of riding a bike, I then wanted to jump because I'd seen the film. I'd seen how they were all kind of, you know, getting air. And the trouble was the bike wasn't designed for that kind of abuse. So I built ramps in the back garden with a plank of wood and bricks. And before too long, I just basically snapped the frame. So I think they realized this is going to last a bit longer than a few weeks. So it's not a passing fad. Maybe he does need a proper bike. Um, and then the next bike was a, a rally super burner. And that was, that was when it all started. Yeah, as you say, not a passing fad. But how did you go mm. from a very enthusiastic, passionate kid to the world's most successful ever track cyclist? I mean, that's a hell of a jump. 
Yeah, it, it wasn't a meteoric rise and it wasn't, I wasn't one of these kids that you would just have picked out at a young age and thought, well, they've got, you know, sort of inverted comes talent for, for that kind of thing. Because I don't, I don't really like the word talent because it kind of, the connotations are that it's easy and that you just sort of get out of bed and you're good at whatever it is you do. But the reality for, for anything, I think, is that you have to, you know, it's hard work, it's consistency, it's, it's hard graft that gets you there. And I think that we're kind of fed this notion of talent in all walks of life, whether it's singing, dancing, sport, whatever, the word talent just gets overused. And I think for kids growing up, knowing that whatever it is you're passionate about, whatever it is you've got a, you know, an interest in, that's great, but it's going to take a lot of hard work. And for me, I just loved racing bikes. I loved riding bikes. I did BMX. I got into mountain biking. Uh, I joined a cycling club in Edinburgh when I was about 14. And they met once a week in, at the velodrome in, at Meadowbank. And I got a bike there and I just started racing once a week. And it wasn't, yeah, as I say, I wasn't great at the start. I was just sort of plodding away, steady improvements. But I guess what I did have was, was ambition. I, I wanted to get better. I wanted to see how far I could go. And yeah, it kind of, it was a very gradual rise rather than a, a sudden burst onto the scene. Okay, but you have made an incredibly successful career of it. Was there a plan B though? I mean, I know you went to university, so you must have had mm -hmm. it in the back of your mind that if this doesn't work out, I've got another path, or did you? Yeah, well, it was, it was never going to be a career because there was, it was, I don't know, it's like there, there was absolutely no chance at all of making a living out of cycling. In the, in the early days, there was no support financially. We didn't have an indoor track to train on, you know, 12 months of the year. Britain as a track cycling nation were, you know, a sort of C or D grade nation, really. We had one or two individuals who were successful, but no team set up. So there was no, there wasn't even a, it wasn't even a possibility. Even if you had the, the potential, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a pathway to follow like there is now. So if you're a 16, 15, 16 year old um, athlete now, you're into cycling, you have the ability, you're going to work hard, you can follow a pathway to success. But back then there wasn't. So it was always about, you know, have your, have your um, sort of career or have, get your qualifications, have a backup plan. And then cycling was a hobby that I was just, I was basically doing it to see how far I could go, to see if I could make the team for the Commonwealth Games. And the Olympics were, the, that was the dream. But it was such a, it was such a pipe dream in those days because we didn't even have, like, there was nobody in Britain winning medals in sprint events in, in my lifetime. I think uh, Ray Harris, uh, Reg Harris was the last, you know, big name in sprinting. And that was back in the 1950s. So... We had nobody to really emulate or look up to or, or have as a role model within the UK. So it was really, it was tough. But, but the, the, the heart of it all was just a, a love for what I was doing. I loved racing my bike. I loved riding my bike. I loved being with the guys, with the team. Um, you know, having a goal to work towards, training hard. Um, and over the years, it just, so many things happened at the right moment for me. Really lucky, you know, sort of sliding doors moments where, you know, I finished university in 1999. And that was just when lottery funding had started so it meant I didn't have to get a full-time job I could pursue my dream for a year or two and see how it went and you know it was, it was ten thousand pounds and that was like a million pounds back in those days because it paid my rent it paid for my food it paid for you know all the kind of the things you needed to do to be a full-time bike rider and within a year I was at the Olympics in Sydney and we got a silver medal in the team sprint and it was just it was like you were living your dream it was it was incredible you just did it for the love of it you weren't thinking beyond the next year but it was just, uh, yeah, a huge amount of fun. So what were you going to be had this cycling dream not materialised? I've got no idea. So I started out, um, I went to university in St Andrews to do physics and maths, and I, and I quite enjoyed that at school. 
but then I went to university and I, it was just so dry and I was I just didn't enjoy it and what I have learned in life is that you work hard at the things that you enjoy and you know, it doesn't matter how how hard or how how willing you are to be committed to something if you don't enjoy it you won't you won't work hard enough and it was I just I was having a really good time at the university having fun socially but I wasn't um, enjoying the course so I changed to do sports science in Edinburgh I went back home so partly to have a, sort of a proper go at cycling and um, this was about 1996 I think it was 1995 96 um, and it was just I was finding myself looking up scientific journals trying to answer the questions to the things that I I couldn't get an answer from because I didn't have a coach we didn't have people helping us or guiding us so I always want to know about how to train for sprint events or lots of endurance cyclists around you could talk to you, but very few sprint cyclists. So I had all these different questions and I thought, well, if no one can, can give me the answers, I just have to go out and find them myself. So I'd go to the library, get all these journals out, look at you know information on strength conditioning or power athletes from different sports and try and write my own training program and, and sort of formulate it that way. And then I realized, well, why don't I do a degree in this? Because I may as well get something from this. You know, yeah. I'm interested in it, I'll work harder at it. So I went to, to Edinburgh University and did sports science and I loved it. And it was, it never felt like I was like, like a chore, like I was having to work. I was just really interested in it. Right, let's talk about how you went from that into this incredible Olympic journey that you embarked on. Um, your first gold medal in 2004? Yes, that's right. right. And I'm not going to gloss over that because that was an incredible moment for you. Uh, just reflect on that for us. Yeah, it was... I went into it as world champion. So the event I was riding was the 1,000 meter time trial where you only get one ride. There's no heats, there's no qualifications. So you basically don't know what your rivals have got until, until it's too late. So, um, you know, you, you go up in reverse order of your seeding. So I was world champion, I was last to go. So I sat and watched everybody post their time before I went on the track. And I think three riders or four riders before went up, um, a guy from Australia, Shane Kelly, he went up and broke the world record. And then the next guy, the German, Stefan Nimke, broke it again. And then Arnold Tourneau from France broke it again. And I was last to go, having seen the world record broken three times. So it was just a really, although it's a very physical event, it's a kind of a pure event, the time trial. There's, there's no tactics involved. It's your strategy. You're just racing against the clock. But the mental side of it is really a huge challenge because it's so hard not to be distracted um, by the times that the other riders have posted. So I got to the start line, you know, it was just everyone else had finished their ride. It was me to go, I was last to go. And it just felt like the most intense pressure I've ever felt in my life. Um, and this was the most important moment because I, this, is, this is my chance to become Olympic champion, my dream. And the only way I got through it was just by basically visualizing and focusing on myself and not worrying about the, the variables, not worrying about what anyone else has done because I had no control over that. Just literally stick to the game plan and get it out get get that all those you know all those thousands of hours of hard work the visualization the mental preparation um and it was so surreal because i crossed the finishing line and i and it was so like all the visualizations all the kind of mental rehearsal it was it was almost like the perfect ride but i hadn't visualized what was going to happen after the finishing line so normally you celebrate straight away if you've won the race and i crossed the line and i just for a moment thought is this is this actually happening is this real and I looked up at the scoreboard and I saw my name and the number one and OR for Olympic record. And it was just this, this is actually really odd, but I should put my heart, I should put my arm up in the air just in case I have actually won this, in case this is real, because I'll look really odd if I'm not celebrating. And I did about a lap or two, just looking like I'm completely in a daze. 
until I spotted my family up on the stands waving the, the flag and the banner. And it kind of sunk in that this is, this is actually happening. And yeah, I achieved my, my dream of becoming Olympic champion. It was, that was the, you know, I'd say other than in London 2012, that was the most significant moment of my, my whole career. And how did you keep that mental strength up? Because that must, as you've touched on, been intense. Was that all self-coached, all visualisation? Because it's a hell of a lot for one bloke to take on. It's, well, I think in the early days before we had, um, so Steve Peters was our psychologist and he, he changed the way that I looked at my, my life, not just my sporting life. And, um, but I didn't really engage with Steve when he first joined the team because up until that point, we'd never had a psych psychologist. It was seen as a bit of a, a kind of, mysterious thing and also it was almost like a, a, a showing a sign of weakness to go and see a psychologist you know if they if someone in the team was seeing a psychologist everyone was like what what are they you know what's he talking about and you know <laughs> does he make you lie on a sofa and talk about your childhood and things like that you know you, you thought it was some sort of I don't know almost yeah, a sign of weakness that you had to see a psychologist whereas now of course we know that's absolute nonsense and it's there's so much so much you can, can, can gain from seeing somebody who can help your your mental side of your sport because often the mental side is is what separates the you know the, the first from second from third place so um steve peters was incredible he he taught me about perspective in life about you know caring about what you're doing and have passion for what you're doing but understanding that it is actually it's pretty trivial unless you're saving lives what you do is, is pretty trivial so the consequences of getting it wrong you know if it goes wrong so what you know you're riding bikes in anti-clockwise circles it's not life and death You've got to enjoy it. You've got to give it your all, but not fear the outcome, not worry about failure. Um, and also not let success be a distraction too. You know, not, not, you're not going into the race thinking about the gold medal or thinking about what would happen if I lose this. You're thinking about the process. So you focus on the process and the out, not, the, not about the outcome. You focus on the process, the outcome will follow, but just it's the kind of ABC of what you need to do will hopefully lead you towards that end result. But you never worry about the end result when you're doing it. It's just the process. That's so interesting because naturally I would assume as humans, I know I do it, I would definitely be thinking about the result. If this happens, I'm going to be an Olympic champion. If it doesn't, I'm not. And you bounce between mm. two extremes and that can't yeah. be healthy. But how on earth do you sort of compartmentalise enough to sort of keep those thoughts from creeping in? Well, it's, I mean, you're absolutely right there. You, you look at football as an example, look at the penalty shootouts in um, you know, a World Cup final or a semi-final and you're stepping up to take that penalty and these guys, they could score a goal, you know, a penalty with their eyes closed 999 times out of 1,000. But that one time where they've got to do it and they're either going to be the hero or the villain if they miss. And, and you know, that is a classic example of being able to focus on the process in that moment, not, not thinking, God, if I stick this in the top corner of the net here, we're going to be in the World Cup final or we're going to win the World Cup. And equally... I'll be on the headlines if I'm the one that misses it. There's that pressure, that weight, and they, they change the way that they approach the ball. They might make a last-second change of decision about where they're going to go for it. They might end up sticking it in the other corner and missing or, or sticking it straight to the keeper or whatever. So for me, the way I got around that whole, you know, worrying about the outcome, it was purely focusing on, on the process. Having a, the, the visualisation part of it is very important. So you know visualizing exactly what you want to do through each stage of your race um and and but not having such a rigid plan that if something happened or or you know like in the kieran for example or the sprint there's lots of variables things can change so you can't just have one plan but it's about being able to refocus um 
and reapply the next plan. If plan A is not working, you, you change the plan B or plan C or plan D. But, but visualization is a really powerful tool, definitely. Now, you, you said that 2004, aside from 2012, was probably the most significant moment. Is that because it, it released some kind of pressure off you in a way? Because you'd proved yourself now, you could almost relax and say, right, I've, I'm established now as an Olympic gold medal winner. I can just get on with what I'm good at now. I think it's because it's such a big thing. And I always, growing up, I always saw Olympic champions or people who were successful in their sport or their career. They were just different to the rest of us. They were born that way. They were, they were, they were destined to be champions. And, and it was in 2000 when I saw my teammate Jason Queeley win the gold medal in Sydney that, that my kind of, my whole, it was like a real light bulb, light bulb moment because I suddenly thought, well, here's a guy who's just, he's just Jason. He's my, my mate. He's an ordinary bloke. You know, he's not a superhero like I thought Olympic champions would be. And he's just won a gold medal. And he was the first person that I knew personally who had, you know, become an Olympic champion. I thought, well, if he can do it, maybe I can get close to that. And it was a real inspiration to see him win the gold medal. So four years later, to, to, I think winning an Olympic gold medal was, it was without doubt the biggest target and the biggest ambition I had. And once you've won that gold medal, you're an Olympic champion for life. So... Mm. You know, I think there was pressure lifted and it was significant, but on the downside, nothing was measuring up to it. So every race I went to after Athens, you go to World Championships the next year in LA, 2005, and it was just, I felt a bit flat. I didn't, I couldn't get the best out of myself because I felt like it's, it's not, it, this isn't as important, it's not as big, it's not as great as the Olympics. Um, so I definitely experienced a bit of a dip after the 2004 Games. Um, and it took a while to start changing things around. Ironically, the, the biggest or the, one of the most important shifts in my career was when that event was dropped from the Olympic program. So in 2005, they, they dropped the kilo from the, the one I was Olympic champion in, the event I was Olympic champion in, from the Olympic Games um, program in <coughs> Beijing. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so I had to make a decision. Do I retire now, age 28, 29? Or do I try and take up a new event and adapt and, and sort of learn a new new skills and tactics and techniques? Um, and it was purely because of the support around me, the amazing structure of support, the coaching infrastructure, the psychological infrastructure too with Steve Peters um, that allowed me to, to pursue these new events and to develop these new skills and go on to, to win the, the three gold medals in Beijing. The world continues to evolve and the new norm isn't fully clear yet. But what does remain constant is the core message from our friends at Bose. Stay calm, stay centred and stay connected. Communication is key in everything we do and goes a long way to nurturing both ourselves and our relationships with others. So continue to talk about what matters to you. And don't be afraid to block out unhelpful noise or indeed to embrace silence because doing both can be great. Some of the ways we work will have changed forever. Embrace that. Make those new ways work for you. Shape the new norm to suit you. Feel more, do more, be more with Bose. I mean, just, just the three gold medals. I have to say <laughs> that 2008 does seem like a watershed moment. Um, mm. certainly from the outside looking in, in terms of the revolution <laughs> of cycling, um, to be not just a part of that, but to be leading the charge, a trailblazing to that extent. 
really putting cycling on the map. Um, how exciting was that for you at the time and now to look back on? It was, it was an amazing time. And even, you know, normally when you're in the middle of something, you're not aware of, of the significance or, or just the relevance. And, you know, it's usually five, ten years back, you know, you can look back with hindsight and look at it all. But, but even then, we realised something special was happening. There were so many athletes in all events that were coming towards the peak of their career, really special athletes. We had a team of people who, it was the only time really, and I mean, the team has been amazing in many phases, many eras, but I think the 2008, so 2006 to 2008 was the, the peak for the whole team, the way that every single person from the people booking the flights to the physios, to the mechanics, to the riders, to the coaches, the senior staff, everybody felt, you felt like you were on, all on the same side, all pushing in the same direction. Everybody had the same mission. Um, it was, and you could feel the morale was just, it was like a kind of getting amplified, you know, the snowball effect, gaining, gaining momentum as we got closer to Beijing. But even with all that and all the positive feeling and all the success leading up to then, I don't think we really believed that it was going to be as successful as it was. And it was, yeah, it was almost as though the, the first night of competition, we were in the team sprint. And the Friends for the Favourites, it's one event that we hadn't won a gold medal um, for about six years, really, at the men's team sprint. And the French were hot favourites. Um, they got onto the track and we posted our qualifying time right before they got on the track. And we broke the world record. And as we were sort of rolling around, I could see the French walking up onto the track to line up and get into the start gate. And I could see one of the French riders look up at the clock at the scoreboard. But you never do. You know, when you're about to race, you're focusing on yourself. But I could see him looking up and he sort of shook his head as he looked at the time. And I could see it was like the penny was dropping. He was like, oh my God, they're, you know, they've just broken our world record. I don't think we can go as fast. You could see him, just the negativity soaking in. And they went slower than us in the qualifying. We won the gold medal that night. And it, it just, it seemed to set the tone for the rest of the week. Um, and it was, yeah, almost every time the Brits got on the track, you could see the posture, the, the shoulders were like, oh God, you know, here they come again. And it, it was, it just demoralized the other nations. I think we won eight gold medals out of 10 events. And it was, um, yeah, quite a, a remarkable few days, a really special, special time. And I, I, yeah, I do remember watching it thinking, yeah, it's a given, we're going to take gold again. I mean, when do you ever go into a competition feeling like that? Particularly for you, making that big transition in terms of the disciplines that you were competing in, how, how tricky was that both physically and mentally? I know you say you had a great support network around mm -hmm. you, but a lot of that would have come from you. It, it was... It was hard because the, the kilo as an event is very um, controlled. There's, there's very few variables in there. The fastest rider always wins. Um, you know, it's a straight shootout against the clock. Whereas the, the, the sprint and the Kieran are crazy events. The Kieran originated in Japan as a, a gambling sport um, after World War II. So it's like a $10 billion, pound, sorry, $10 billion a year industry now as a gambling sport. It's huge. On the, there's one big day they have in Japan, um, the Grand Prix. And on that one day, there's more money gambled, more money bet than the entire British horse racing season in one day. I mean, it's absolutely massive over there. So it's a really, the reason it's successful is because it's, or the reason they use it as a gambling sport is because it's very unpredictable. So here was me going from a, one of the most predictable um, controlled events to the least controllable event. And I didn't like that feeling of lack of control. I wanted to know that if I got to the start line, having done everything I could, then I'd have a really good chance of winning. So I had to... I guess right to my strengths. So one of the things that I, I learned in this two or three years before Beijing was to 
to play to my strengths. So a kilo rider does a four lap effort, a thousand meters. The, the Kieran, you've got two and a half laps. So my struggle was the peak speed racing against the guys that had a little bit more speed, but we could go for a shorter distance. So I thought, well, why don't I just take it out from the front, lead from the front, use my kilo strength and all the chaos that's happening behind, it doesn't matter what's happening behind you. If you're in the front on the black line, taking the shortest route, then you're controlling all these variables. So I started racing from the front and I, nobody had ever done that before because usually if you do that, they sit behind you, they get in the slipstream and then they pop past you at the end. But I just managed to learn how to, I guess, gauge my effort. So I was, it, was, it wasn't like I was purely sprinting from the start, but I just ratchet up about 1% every sort of 50 meters, 60 meters until I was absolutely on it for the last lap. And by that point, they were all strung out and it was harder for them to come past. So it was, I guess it was finding ways to play to my own strengths um, and to try and control as many variables as possible in a really unpredictable uh, event. God, it's, that's fascinating to listen to because so many people should be able to apply those principles to whatever walk of life they're in, whatever they're doing. It's about controlling con the controllables, but you know, perhaps just reassessing how you approach things. That's, that's really interesting it's, for business, life, sport, everything, isn't it? I think it's, it's understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, trying to improve your weaknesses, but also play to your strengths wherever you can. And I think being proactive, you know, in, the, in a race situation, in, certainly in the sprint and the queuing, the first person to make the move, the first person who initiates um, their tactic on the race has a, you know, we used to do all the analysis on it and it was about 80% chance of winning. If you're the one that's proactive and makes the move, then everybody else is reacting to you. So immediately they're not able to impose their tactics because they're reacting to yours. It doesn't mean to say, you know, if you go flat out from the start every time, it's not going to work every time. But if you can, if you can dictate the tactics, then everybody else is on the back foot. So it certainly applies to, to other, you know, avenues in life, certainly. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it, obviously that was the biggest thing I did to try and um, become successful in these new events. So interesting, because it's about unnerving the opposition as well, isn't it? You've suddenly mm. got a psychological advantage over them. Okay, let's um, fast forward then. To, so we, we, we go into this sort of golden era for cycling. And then that means that by the time we've got Olympics on home soil, uh, you know, you're riding the crest of a wave and you've got this whole kind of army of fans behind you. But li quite literally, you were at the forefront with, as the flag bearer. Mm. And, uh, in London I mean what yeah. a moment that must have been well it was it was never really on the radar so I, I had you know everything was planned to you know with real precision and we kind of use F1 as our, our gold standard to look to in the way that F1 teams operate and Dave Brailsford used them as his that was the template really marginal gains that whole philosophy came from Formula One so so many things are you know you're trying to think of everything every single possible thing to control to optimize to get the best out of and then the last minute the spanner in the works was you know guess what you've been nominated to carry the flag by your teammates and it, it, one of the biggest honors you could possibly imagine but equally <laughs> it was like well <clears throat> you're going to be walking for about four hours or on your feet for at least four hours on the night you're racing you know three days later you would never ever as cyclists one of our mantras are you know, don't stand when you can sit and don't sit when you can lie down so, you know, cyclists never walk anywhere. They will rest their legs at any opportunity they can. And here I was, right, here's stand with the flag and, and stay on your feet for four hours, you know, a matter of a couple of days before your competition. But there was no way I was going to miss it. So it was like, well, right, what, what do I do then? Well, you know, get one of these little, you know, these little chairs that fishermen have, or, you know, they're kind of, you can 
the, the portable chairs you pop out so you can sit down and rest your legs. So when you basically line up at the village and make this walk, it's only about maybe two miles, but from the village into the stadium. And, but you're, it takes you three or four hours to get there. You're doing it in really slow segments. You stop and there's crowds on either side and you're waving and chatting and, you know, posing for photos and stuff. But it, it takes so much energy, sort of emotional energy out of you because it's so exciting and you're so hyped up. The whole team's with you that there's a risk that you can get through the opening ceremony and be absolutely drained. <clears throat> and even like now, it's quite pertinent to the whole the world we're in now, but even things like picking up bugs. So you're shaking hands with so many people, you're high-fiving. So you have this, I had my, my gel on the little pack on my hip and I was just putting hand gel on every sort of 30 seconds to try and not pick up bugs because um, in Beijing, the, the triathlon team was wiped out with a diarrhea and vomiting bug and they were in our block and we were told, you know, you don't touch lift buttons, don't touch door handles, don't touch um, handrails, anything at all, don't shake hands. You know, we've got to be on full lockdown here to try and minimize the chance of getting sick and we got through it un unscathed. So. Um, you learn these little things, just marginal things you can do to, to minimize risk. So anyway, got to the, to the final um, point of about to walk into the stadium with the flag. And it was just like this moment of realization that the last four years, the hard work, the ups and downs, the injuries, the defeats, the, you know, I only just got selection for the Olympics as well. The things hadn't gone that well the last six months. And it was a really tough time. And I was 36, so it was, you know, for an athlete in a sprint event, I was really old. I was the oldest of any um, gold medalist, certainly, in history to, to do a sprint event in cycling. So all these concerns and worries and negativity, you know, ups and downs, I finally got there. And I stood there with this flag and walked out and Bowie, you know, Bowie's heroes pumps out and there's confetti and, and it was just the noise, everything about it. I remember thinking the last four years, the hard work, it's been worth it for this moment. So it, it took the weight off my shoulders. I didn't feel as if I had extra pressure as a flag bearer. I, I thought, well, that was all worth it for this one moment. And without doubt, looking back in my, my life so far, that, that, those few seconds walking in there were amongst the most special, and I, including you know, the birth of your children or you know, anything else, getting married. It was, it was right up there. It was a really, really special moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
That's amazing. And uh, we, we talked a lot about the sort of mental side of, of your sport. Physically, how tough is it? Because you touched on it there, being 36, you were, you were pretty old to be doing what you were doing. Mm. Um, how much, you kind of like, a, how finely tuned are you and how much physical effort do you need to put into to each event? Well, it, because it's a sprint event, although the races are quite short, it means the intensity is, is maximal. So every session you do, every training session, if you can't do 100% effort, there's no point in training. So it's, it's physically, I'd say it's as hard mentally as it is physically. So every single day you come in, you can't just turn in and sort of do a session, get through it, either do it properly or don't do it at all. So you have this mentality of being able to switch on focus for a few seconds and then switch off. So you can be in the track center on a training day, having a laugh with, with your teammates, and then as soon as your name gets called to go on the track, it's like switch on, you step on the track, full intensity, being really like true 100% effort, and you can be lying on the ground afterwards, throwing up, you know, it's, it's physically, it's a really grim um, event to train for, certainly the 1,000 meter time trial, the amount of lactic acid or lact amount of lactate your body produces, that real burning sensation, it's, it's not pleasant, but it's what you have to do to get the best out of yourself. So every single session, you are on the limit and the confidence you would get from knowing that there's nothing more you could do in your training sessions in literally every single effort of every single session if you gave 100 percent when you got to the start line on race day every four years you could almost take the pressure off you knew that well if, if i win i win if i don't win i don't win because you, you know you got to shake the guy's hand if he beats you fair enough but as long as you've done everything you can within your powers to be the best you can be mm. that's all you can ask for as long as your hand sanitizing after you shake his hand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fist bumping. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've made this up, but I seem to remember somewhere you saying that your thighs were bigger than your wife's waist. Is that true? <laughs> have I made well, that up? it all started because, you know, good old Daily Mail or whoever the tabloids were, um, the first thing they wanted to know. So after, like, you know, you've got all these journalists who follow your career when you're competing, and then all of a sudden the Olympics, all the tabloid journalists pile in and want to know everything. And so it was like, wow, look, how big are your legs? Um, 27, 27 inches. And then they sort of came back and said, that's bigger than Posh Spice's waist. Oh. And I was like, wow. And then, so then it was like, well, and then my waist, well, that, that's, that's bigger than my waist too. And it was it just one of these things people used to say, you know, they used to compare Posh Spice's waist to my legs. Um, but in, I think, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people have waists that are smaller than my legs. Maybe not now, but um, yeah. That's great though. And then, and then how... How did you feel after competing at the at the um, at the British Olympics at the in the in 2012? Because um, you 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 spoke earlier about sort of not getting your kicks in the same way. That must have been some kind of come down after London 2012. Well, it was, but it was also I kind of realised in that time that it was it was the end of my career. I certainly knew that it was my last Olympic Games. I was gonna I was hoping to try and continue on until Glasgow 2014 for the Commonwealth Games, but Certainly, I knew it was my last Olympics. I'd hung on with, you know, by the skin of my teeth, really. Um, my body was, I was picking up injuries. I wasn't recovering as well as I used to when I was younger. So I was able to just to almost reflect. It was a period of reflecting on my whole career and just being so grateful that it all worked out because it was, it was a tough old time. Um, and all these things, whenever we had any, you know, we didn't have kids at that point. So Callum and Chloe weren't born. So we had this list of places we wanted to go to and visit, things we wanted to do. And whenever I was struggling and training or having a tough time, you know, we'd sit down in the evenings 
and write down you know, on my phone and sort of adding a little thing, oh, let's go and visit that hotel, that restaurant, or go to that place in the world we've not been to yet. So we basically plotted this amazing holiday um, for, it was the start of 2013. And yeah, we went to all over the place. We went to Thailand, Cambodia, out to Australia. Um, we drove the whole of the East Coast right up to in Queensland, North Queensland, back down. And then we flew into, went, went from, I went to Melbourne for the F1 and I got my first ever driving motorsport race. I raced in a celebrity challenge. I remember. I'm sure you were there for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And I got, I got, the car got absolutely smashed up. I got came second in the end, but it was a, it was like dodging cars. It was crazy. Um, but that really kind of ignited my passion for, for motorsport. I mean, I was already planning to do a bit of racing before that, but that, you know, as your first ever race to be doing yeah. it in front of a, you know grand prix audience on on race weekend it was absolutely amazing but um yeah this this was the most incredible holiday i had and i thought you know what i've got i'm so lucky to have been through this amazing career and to have achieved what i, I never dreamt i would even win one gold medal let alone six so although it's the end of your career and you know there is a period of mourning almost where your career is over and you realize that's it and you're coming to terms with the fact that you're retiring but it was just the chance i had all these new opportunities the chance to start a family, you know, just an exciting time and having a bit of balance in your life as well, because you're so, you have to be so one dimensional and focus on one thing for so long. It can be quite exhausting mentally to then have the balance and the chance to do new stuff and not worry about how your legs feel every morning when you wake up and kind of, you know, it needs to roll out of bed and your body aches. And um, it was quite nice to have a, a bit more of a normal, you know, angle to your life. Because I was going to ask you where the passion for motorsport came from, but really listening to you for the last half an hour or so, I can totally see it because you are <laughs> interested in marginal gains. You are interested mm -hmm. in preparation, controlling the controllables, all the things that uh, we really focus and obsess about in Formula One. Mm -hmm. and, and presumably you have been able to get some kind of adrenaline fix from your pursuit of motorsport. Just tell us about mm. Le Mans, tell us about all the other events that you've been involved in and you know what you've made of it all. Yeah, well, I was, I was inspired by Colin McRae. He was my hero in motorsport and I used to watch the World Rally all the time. And the fact that Colin did, you know, Dakar Rally, he did Le Mans himself. He got on the podium in Le Mans in GTE class. Um, you know, he, he was an amazing guy, world champion Scottish. So it was really thanks to Colin, A, he inspired me and B, um, we, we did a documentary about his life and his career in 2013 and it was through the BBC and I was presenting it so I got to meet Colin's family and it was through that filming that I, I got a chance to race in a, a novice race series that year and that's really where it all sort of started from it spiraled from um, but there I guess motorsport to people who maybe don't get it or who who aren't interested in it it's just for me, the reason I love it so much, A, it's the obvious stuff, the speed, the adrenaline, the competition, that's amazing. But it's also being part of a team and having a, a common goal that you're all working towards and having, you know, I love the data, I love the, the, the detail you go into. And when I first started, I couldn't believe the difference that, you know, raising the ride height a centimetre or a few millimetres could make, you know, change, you know, the fact that the tyres can degrade so quickly and the effect that has on your lap times, all these tiny little things that, that go together to make this overall package this performance package so um yeah i love it and i'm my, my level is and i'm you know an amateur driver i'm never going to be that great but what i love about the sport is you can compete alongside professional drivers and you can look at your data you can see how you can improve you can see what they're doing you can see what you're doing and and le mans is the pinnacle of that kind of program 
um, competition. And Le Mans, I, got a, I had a Skeletric set when I was a kid. It was a Le Mans edition. I had two Porsche 911s with lights on them. And I, so I've always been interested in Le Mans from a, you know, five or six years of age. And then 2016, I managed to progress through the ranks. We won the European Le Mans series in 2015 to qualify for, for Le Mans. And there I was pulling out the pit lane, going down the Mozan Strait, and Mark Webber's going past in the Porsche. And I remember just thinking, this is absolutely incredible. You know, it, it was it, a real sort of pinch yourself moment to, to be out there on the track at such an iconic race, living your dream. That's a miracle. You've got the time mm. to get in there. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know you're not yeah. small. All these races are like little whippets, aren't they? You, you yeah, know. they are. And that's, that's I, the thing, you know. Big legs don't help you in motorsport. In fact, I've broken, I've broken more um, brake pedals on the simulator. So there was Nissan were my sort of main sponsor and supporter um, up to Le Mans. And we had a sim that I used to use. And this, they kept coming back with tougher and tougher rubber bushings for the brake pedal. Because they said, you've got to hit it hard. I was like, okay, I'll hit it hard. And they're like, no, not well. Okay, we'll get a stronger pedal for you. And I just kept breaking them. So in the end, it was just this realization that, yeah, strong legs don't really make a difference in motorsport. Sadly. One format that I love that I know you took part in was race champions. Because it's oh, yeah. the idea that you, you that you put everyone in on a level playing field because everyone's always arguing like who the best racer is. And you you partnered with Grosjean, didn't you? Tell us about That's that. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So basically I got a call from David Coulthard about Wednesday that week. Um and I was due to be going down there anyway for it was in at Wembley and it there was a celebrity challenge where it was basically just in an aerial atom doing little a little route around cones in the track centre. And David said, um, I, think, I think it was Lorenzo or somebody had, had injured themselves and they needed yes. someone to step in. And it just so happened that was the season that we, where we won the European Le Mans series. So technically, technically, um, I was a champion that year in motorsport, albeit the amateur side of a pro, pro-am team. Um, and he said, do you want to come down and do this you know, race of champions? I was like, well, of course I do, but equally, you know, I don't want to make an idiot myself because I'm up against, you know, the F1 drivers, the rally drivers, all the best drivers in the world. And he said, like, don't worry about it. Even if you're, you know, way off the pace, you're only going to be a couple of seconds behind. Um, and on, you know, on a short circuit, it doesn't look that bad. Just have fun. Come down and get involved. And, and I did. I got down and I had about 45 minutes of practice on the empty track. And then it was straight in the deep end. I think I was against... Pascal Verlein, or I'm not sure it was. There's a couple of different races, but it wasn't. It wasn't too bad. I was about maybe one point. I was just under two seconds down after the race, so it wasn't like I was a million miles off. But um, what an experience! Yeah, a fantastic, fantastic time and a great celebration, a great party afterwards as well. Yeah, I bet it was. Oh, Pascal <laughs> Verlein, that is such a blast from mm. the past. You know, he. It were there was a time where they were talking about him being the next big thing in Formula One, mm. and it's fallen away from him. But well, he had that massive crash. I think it was two or three years later at the Race of Champions where he flipped it and landed on top of it. Because um, I remember at the time, you, you, it's all in a very tight track and it's all sort of fun. And, but it just, motorsport is one of these things that, you know, you never, ever get complacent with it. You're always aware of the dangers. You know, you, you, you analyse the risks and you take that on board and you go out there and you try and minimise the risks. But yeah, just even on a fun, a fun event like that, he had a really serious crash and he was, he was fine. But yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember now um, wondering how much that had compromised him, either physically or mentally, like coming psychologically into the Formula One season with this dodgy mm. neck. But yeah, it'd be interesting. Mm. We should find out how he's getting on. Um, in the Pink and Bows want to support you in whatever way we can during these uncertain and constantly evolving times. 
So we're giving away more noise-cancelling headphones to bring some added calm to your life. To win the headphones, just tag in the three friends you're most looking forward to reconnecting with once lockdown is fully lifted. Always include the hashtag Bose and those headphones could be yours. Good luck and stay connected. Let's talk more about your family because I remember being pregnant at the mm-hmm. same time as your wife. Our baby boys were due at the same time and then getting a message from you saying, actually, she's gone into labour very early and mm. frighteningly early um, and suddenly everything was turned on its head. Uh, you know, we know that there's a happy ending to this, but just recount that, um, that time for you because that must have been incredibly scary. Yeah, it was 2014 and um, Callum was due to be born in around Christmas time. And Sarah just, she was starting to feel a little bit unwell, having these sort of, I guess, chest pains and heartburn and just not feeling very well. Called the, called, um, was it, what's the number? Triple or 112, is it? No, what's the number for it? Yeah, that's it. And then. So I was sleeping, so she called it and just said, you know, up for advice. And then she woke me up and said, oh, there's an ambulance coming. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, there's an ambulance coming. They want to take me to the hospital just for a checkup. And I was just like, oh, God, you know, classic um, overreaction, not for overreaction from Sarah, but, you know, they've, they've obviously got the wrong end of the stick. There's nothing wrong with you. Just, you know, take a Rennie. You'll be fine. Go back to bed, darling. You'll be okay. They took her in and it was like, well, we think you might have had a, a mild heart attack. And, and we're not really sure what the issue is because you, you know all your other um, physical um, you know indicators are that you're healthy and there's no risk of heart attack in your family and you're you know everything else is fine. So we can't work out why it is. So we're going to keep you in for a bit longer. Long story short, um, through help syndrome and preeclampsia, she was going to have to have um, have Callum early. So he was only 29 weeks at that point. And it was just this, and she was barely even showing a bump at that stage. And it was just this feeling of, oh, you know, it's just a tiny little bean in there. It's not, you know, not a fully grown baby. This is not really looking that great. And it was just really scary. And you're trying to be as supportive and calm and relaxed about it on the outside so that, you know, you can be reassuring to, to, your, to your wife, to Sarah. But um, it was scary as hell, really scary. And then he was born about, I think, 48 hours later. Um, and it was, yeah, he was two pounds two when he came out. So he was this tiny little thing. I mean, literally, you know, you could hold him and sort of cup him in two hands. Um, and he was straight into the neonatal ward and living in an incubator with tubes and wires and machines. And, you know, Sarah didn't even see him for the first couple of days. She couldn't come up to see him because she wasn't well enough. And it was just a really hard time. And you never, yeah, I guess you draw upon all the experience you have of dealing with pressure and dealing with, you know, in your sporting life and trying to apply it to something that's way more serious and way more terrifying um, and just taking it one day at a time and thinking about the things that, again, the things you can, can do, things you can control and not worry about the things that you can't control. Um, but yeah, as you say, the, the happy end of the story is that he's now five and a half and he's the tallest in his class and he's, you know, at normal school and he's riding around on his bike and he's doing great. And it's, it is amazing. You know, once you have a premature baby, you then you're, exposed this whole new world that you never knew existed really um other families other people who have been born prematurely themselves or you know stories of all these different journeys these families have gone through so sarah's now an ambassador for bliss that's a neonatal um charity and and it's it's just you know every day you know I, I, you must get sick of a cynic to him because every day we're like 
come here, son. Let, let me look at your feet. Your feet are massive. How have you grown so much? Look how tall you are, you know, because you've got all these pictures of him as a little tiny, tiny little thing. And his, his, you know, his feet were like about that long. And now they're, you know, they're about that size. He's got like massive feet. So yeah, it's, it is incredible how far he's come and how much it changes your perspective in life when you suddenly realize these are the important things, not, not winning medals on, on, a, on a bike riding around tracks. You know, this is, this is what life is about. Are there any signs of his premature birth? Because I know that they can sort of rear up later, you know, after Yeah, yeah it's ongoing and it's, you know, in terms of, you never really know. And it's funny because you never know what's just the personality or the, or the sort of characteristics of your child and what the, whether that's just down to the genes or whether it's down to um, the fact they were born prematurely. Um, it was a tough, you know, the first 18 months were really tough because although we got him out of hospital after about, um, it was two and a half months I think he was in for, it was, you know, he was far more susceptible to respiratory um, infection and, and there was big risk of, you know, that kind of thing. So for six months, really, he was kept away from the outside world. We didn't take him out at all. Um, and then, you know, he was in and out hospital a fair few times. And it was, you never kind of get this feeling of, you know, all clear, everything's fine. He's, you know, he's normal and he's fine. That's great because, yeah, as you say, there's all sorts of things can, can transpire in, in later life. But but I guess what we have learned is you just take it one day at a time and you enjoy the good bits. Um, I mean, one of the bad parts of it, and again, who knows if it's anything to do with his prematurity or not, but he just didn't sleep. He didn't sleep until he was about two and a half. It just about killed us. <laughs> and, you know, it was, he would sleep for, you know, it'd be 20 minutes or half an hour and then wake up for, it could be an hour or two hours and back down for 40 minutes and then up for another two or three hours. You could have maybe two and a half hours sleep in a night broken into little 20 minute segments. And it was, you know, and I was trying to work through as well. And it was, for all of us, it was a, a tough time. But then Chloe came along and she slept like, she, when she's sleeping now, she's been in bed for about an hour now. She sleeps two or three hours in the afternoon and then 12 hours at night. And it's absolutely, she's, she's in just two and a half years old now. It's, it's incredible, like the complete, the, the contrast between the two of them. Um, but yeah. You brought them up the same way. I always thought, I find that fascinating about kids. There's mm. same DNA, they're brought up the same way and they're, they're so different. Mm. i tell you yep. what, my daughter dropped her daytime sleep at about two. She's now three. Mm -hmm. She hasn't, she hasn't done it for well over a year. Mm -hmm. And God, it's that. You miss it. Yeah, well, kids, when they have a nap, two hours a day, you, you get jobs done. You might even have a little <laughs> sneaky sleep yourself. Yeah, oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's, because it, and it also gives you time. So Callum now gets a bit of one-on-one -on -one time with Sarah and myself, yeah. um, which I think is important. You know, it's just to try and give them a bit of your attention. And, and yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's wonderful when they get that piece in the house and, because often the, the noise usually is with two of them either just playing, having fun, or arguing with each other and screaming and shouting. And it's when, when she's in bed, it's usually quite calm and quite quiet. Oh, look, I'm so happy that it's worked out so well because I know, I mean, I remember, I remember it happening and thinking that's got to be the scariest thing for any parent. So it's great. Mm. Look, doing nine miles on a bike, that's just that's more <laughs> yeah. than I can do. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> Now, I know something else that, that, that matters to you is being an advocate for mental health. Why, why is that important? Mm -hmm. Well, I, it was in 2008, um, Sam H, with the Scottish Mental Health Charity, came to me and asked if I'd be um, interested in becoming an ambassador for them. And there were quite a few charities that were coming on board at that time or, you know, approaching me after the Games in Beijing. And I guess it was because one of my heroes um, is Graham O'Brien. He's a Scottish, um, or he was a Scottish world champion cyclist back in the mid-90s. And he was my hero. And I, you know, I, I, 
got to meet him and I was actually a teammate in 1997, my, my second World Championships in Australia. And we shared a room, we were teammates. And I got to know him and I, he was like, you know, my idol. And I was, you know, all these stories, I was asking about what happened here in this race and tell me about that. And I was just, I must've been really annoying just asking so many questions, but it was a, an incredible couple of weeks. And then it sort of transpired that he'd been suffering with mental health problems all his life. Um, I think he's attempted suicide on a number of occasions. And, you know, it, it all came out that he was, you know, he'd had this, this, this struggle through his whole life. He wrote a, a book, um, his autobiography, which then became a film that Johnny Lee Miller played Graham in. It was an amazing, amazing film called The Flying Scotsman. And I guess it was because up until that point, I, I assumed that if here's somebody who's got everything, they've got the gold medal, they've got the success, this is what I want. And I, in my mind, if you have that, you'll be happy. That will be your success in life and you'll be content. And yet he was obviously struggling so much with, with this torment that he had within himself. So it, it can open my eyes to what mental health was. You know, and nowadays everyone's talking about mental health and it's far more um, likely to talk about it and people are far more aware of it and the importance of, of, sort of talking and um, you know, monitoring your, your mental health on a daily basis. But this was the first time I'd ever seen or spoken to anybody who was really had mental illness and was, um, I guess I thought we've got to do something about this and talk about it more. Um, so when Sam H came to me and said, would you like to come on board as ambassador? I thought, well, this is a, a great opportunity to um, pay a tribute to, to my, my hero, Graham. And he's, Graham's still going strong now and he's still suffering with mental health problems. But um, I think he's, he's getting more robust and he's learning to deal with it um, in a better way. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, it's, you look back 10 years and think how much it has changed. You know, the, the, every night on the news, there'll be a talk about mental health. There's, it's on the agenda now, politically, it's on you know, the forefront. Even the worst category are sort of middle-aged men, um, well, certainly for suicide, you know, it's the biggest killer of men aged, I think, 25 to 50. But, but as blokes, we don't want to talk about our feelings or, or you know, our mental health, but now I think it's, it's becoming far easier to do so. And I guess it is people like you being the role models and being the ambassadors that's encouraging that and showing that it is something that we all need to talk about, even as a, a six-time Olympic gold medalist. Well, well, I think it's, you know, it's, it's like the rugby guys, the football guys, the, the kind of the, the manly men, you know, that are sort of perceived by the, the general public. They're the guys who have the biggest impact, I think, because if the bloke in the pub can see that, you know, some six-foot-eight second-row forward can be talking about the mental health, then it's okay for them to be talking about it too. And, and also understanding that mental health is, is no different to your physical health. It's, it's a sliding scale. You know, we all have days where we feel, we wake up in the morning, we feel good. There's days when we wake up, we don't feel quite so good, but it's, that's fine. But if you talk about it and you're aware of it and you think about things that you can do to make yourself feel better and the connection between physical exercise and physical health and your mental well-being is well documented too. So it's just getting the message out there and trying to, trying to help people and, and make uh, and you know cut down on those figures of, of, of suicide rates. Mm -hmm. So with all of that in mind, what do you now do? Having retired from sport, you've obviously busy with your family, but how do you keep your physical and mental health as strong as it can be? I, I guess, well, the two are so closely linked. So I have to have a bit of exercise every day, just, just for, for both those reasons, really, to stay fit and healthy mentally and physically, and just to have a, a bit of structure because my, my days, my weeks are so well, until the last um, few weeks with the lockdown, but prior to lockdown, your days and your weeks are so um, different. I don't have a normal week. I don't have a normal, you know, working week like I used to in the old days. So my, my exercise becomes the one constant I have throughout 
every day um, in a week. So I, I just try and find some time, whether it's on the indoor bike at home here, if I'm traveling, I'm ambassador for pure gyms. So there's pure gyms all over the country so I can get access to a pure gym anywhere, virtually wherever I am. Um, so I just try and do a little bit every day and have a little target before each session. So I'll have a little challenge for myself. I still, still squatting and lifting quite heavy because I quite enjoy that. Um, and I can monitor that compared to what I used to do when I was still competing. Um, but yeah, just getting out the bike with the kids now as well, riding the bike so much fun. And I've got to, got to stay fit to keep up with Callum. He's doing nine miles in a ride, so. <laughs> Little legend. Oh, that's great. Listen, it's been so good to talk to you, Chris. Thank you for that. Thank you, likewise. Food for thought and inspired, I'm sure, a few people to get out there and back on their bikes, even if it's uh, just static in the garden or in yeah, the house. Exactly. That's great. Thanks, and thanks Natalie. Good luck with everything. Love to all the family. And Thank I hope you. to likewise. see you in the flesh soon. <laughs> Take care. All the best. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Thank you, Sir Chris, for your time. Thank you for your insight into what was a hugely successful career, incredible winning mentality, and a seemingly seamless transition to life after professional sport. Also, always good to have a fellow motorsport lover on the podcast. Loads more great podcast guests on the way, including Jason Plato, who, as you know, I'm sure, is a great storyteller. Uh, he's written a book. He tells me all about that and some of the stories that didn't make the cut because they were, quite frankly, too naughty. So it's well worth a listen. He's another hugely successful racer who is also a very good head. So Jason Plato on the way on In the Pink very soon. And don't forget... We could be giving you a pair of Bose noise cancelling headphones. All you need to do is tag in the three friends on Instagram, either on my account or the In The Pink podcast account, who you are most looking forward to reconnecting with once lockdown is fully lifted. Add the hashtag Bose and those headphones could be yours. Until next time, my friends, stay healthy, stay safe, look after yourselves and each other. And we'll see you very soon on In Pink. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.